Here are a few facts about Guinness. It is a dark, creamy stout first brewed in Dublin, Ireland in 1759. It remains the best-selling alcoholic drink in Ireland. There are articles written about the best way to pour a pint, and there are articles written about the statistics related to Guinness. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio today is our regular panelist, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away today. Our guest is Stephen Ziliak. Regular listeners may remember Ziliak won our Better Bays contest by cheating with a haiku about Bays. <laughs> Today, the Roosevelt University professor of economics is here to talk about Guinness-O-Metrics. So, Steve, thank you so much for being here again. I think all of his answers should be in the form of a haiku. <laughs> I, <you know? laughs> so, Steve, you're going to be constrained. <laughs> so, this is a show. This is a show about the story behind statistics, and I'm just going to ask you to tell us the story of what Guinness-O-Metrics is sure of course thank you so much rosemary and john it's so great to be back with you uh guinness metrics is a name that i've given to an experimental approach to decision making uh which is based on statistical methodologies both the design of experiments uh, and observational studies and the analysis and uh, decision making uh, that comes after that analysis uh, it started at the Guinness Brewery uh, in the hands largely of a man who statisticians know by the name of Student, but Student is actually the pen name of a, of a Oxford-trained uh, natural scientist and mathematician named William Seeley Gossett. And so Mr. Gossett is the inventor of this uh, design approach and analytical and decision-making approach to statistics that I think is quite important for our current crisis in uh, validity and what I call the crisis of validity. That is the lack of ability of scientific studies to replicate or reproduce or, or even find something of, of real uh, substantive importance. They're focusing too much on statistical significance. You know, I, first I got to tell you, just just I think how inspired it is to to focus doing your research at the archives at, at the Guinness <laughs> Storehouse. That's a <laughs> I, I know that when I visited Dublin as part of a, a World Stat Congress, the first thing I did was go there and I, I, I stopped by the archives and I found the plaque to to Gossett that's on Lovely. the walls. I mean, what a what a great great place to to visit and 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 you know really neat neat story to talk about in terms of the inspiration for both the T-based inference and and yeah. other. Ideas, I, you know, as part of what you were talking about in 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 your your paper describing that was that was in that special American statistician uh, issue, you talked about the idea of of people thinking in terms of expected value versus in terms of utility. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that and maybe give an illustration? Yes, that's right. Uh, the the difference between expected you uh, ut- well, let's start with expected value. Expected value is the um, expected value of some event that has not yet occurred. There's some probability uh, we think that that it will occur, and there's some value attached to it. It could be a positive value or a negative value. So um, uh, let's say that the winner of the flip of one uh, coin, heads or tails, 
uh, wins a dollar. So uh, it's just one flip and there's no entry fee. So uh, most people would say that the probability of head and tail is equal. It's one half. Uh, and the the coin the prize is going to be worth a dollar, so the expected value of that flip uh, would be uh, fifty cents uh, with no entry fee, if, assuming no cost of uh, entering. Utility is different. Expected utility says um, what what do people really value? What are their preferences? What how do they rank risk and reward um, at different levels of risk and reward? And so if there's no entry fee for the coin flip, then uh, many people would say, sure, I'll, I'll play this game. But suppose instead that you, you, you change the uh, rules. You have to uh, pay 50 cents to get in the game and then um, flip the coin and whoever wins uh, gets, gets a dollar. That's going to make some people say, I don't want to play that game. Um, they'll be right at the margin of, of playing because the expected value is exactly equal to the uh, cost of, of entering the gamble. Uh, but now suppose the entry fee is, I don't know, $1,000, but the prize is $2,000 from one flip of a coin. Some people with very risky preferences will say, ooh, yeah, let's, let's go for it. You know, that sounds like me in Reno or Vegas, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, but many other people will say, no way, Jose, that's not going to work. So when John and I were talking before uh, we all got on here about sort of what kind of approaches to research um, would look like if they took uh, a perspective that was more Guinnessometric. I don't know how how to use that word in a sentence, but so in in it's sort of in your your thinking of how scholars and and researchers might adopt a more a more Gosset esque uh, approach to studies. What would you imagine them doing, and how is that different than what you think sure. researchers are doing now? That's a great question. Um, you know, to use my little um, spontaneous coin flip example there. Uh, I think it, it helps show uh, the, the importance of what Gossett, or it's what we call, who we call student in statistics, what he was really doing there for the Guinness Brewery and indeed for Irish and, and English uh, agriculture. Uh, small sample distributions, the T distribution, for example, uh, small sample tests of significance, including Fisher's uh, P test. Um, those actually have an economic interpretation. That was Gossett's point. It's, it, it's difficult, it's costly to run an experiment on a new strain of barley or on a new type of hops to brew the beer. And understand that Guinness was the largest brewery in the world in, you know, by 1900, they were selling unpasteurized Guinness uh, stout and draft uh, at to the tune of 100 million gallons per year. Can you imagine? No. 100 million gallons yeah. per year in 1900, <laughs> going by boat, you know, to the Horn of Africa. Uh, so um, switching barley varieties, switching hop varieties is going to be very expensive for this large brewery. Uh, therefore, uh, uh, the Guinness metric approach, Gossett's approach, was to design uh, a small series of independent, stratified and balanced experiments on particular varieties of barley and hops, the chief ingredients for the beer, all around the Irish uh, growing regions and, and English growing regions in the case of hops. Uh, so in the case of Ireland, um, 
Gossett, together with the Irish Department of Agriculture, um, laid out 10 different barley growing regions, which differed by soil quality, rainfall, and all that kind of stuff. And then they found farmers who were willing to be commissioned by the Guinness Brewery to annually run um, small experiments on new varieties and testing them for yield and, and barley and brewing quality against previous uh, best competitors. And this, you know, this is so important. If you don't mind me just completing the thought, uh, Rosemary, you asked me, how does Guinness and Metrics um, help advance statistics and science and society over and above what we're already doing? Well, Right now, you know, the National Institutes of Health and, and World Bank and so on, they're doing one and done. Uh, one and done is a very large, you know, randomized controlled study with many thousands of participants and, and, uh, and so forth. And then it's an unrepeated experiment oftentimes. Well, Gossett and, the, uh, and Guinness and Metric says, no, that's actually the wrong approach. In fact, you don't even want to use complete randomization. It's better to systematically um, allocate treatments and controls to experimental units um, because of all sorts of other error-related issues that are not, uh, not random. So... Um, I hope I <laughs> answered some of your questions. Sorry. <laughs> well, let, let, let me let me ask just for a little clarification on that. You know, you know, my sense with with things like with NIH or particularly as you get into the point of drug approval, a lot of times those studies are being done at a series of different clinical centers. Yes. So you do have essentially, you know, kind of the this this stratification that's that's being embedded in there, um, and also you you have different organizations that do look at kind of meta analytic. Uh, efforts to to pull uh, pull the results across a series of of independent studies. So I, I mean I I guess I, I I would think that 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 many that NIH actually is looking and particularly when I think about drug approval processes, you know that that these types of multiple populations or multiple clinical centers are being built into that. So I, I I'm, I'm thinking that that perhaps some of these issues are in fact in, embedded in the what what's being done. That's a very interesting point, John. I, you know, uh, let me back up and say that in economics, uh, political science, and you know, the, the social sciences, that the uh, one and done is is uh, in, including uh, with with my friends and colleagues at the World Bank, one and done uh, with the large scale uh, randomized controlled trial um, is currently uh, considered gold standard uh, behavior, and you see it all over the journals. You're right that when you get down to the nitty gritty of drug approval, that there are many other um, steps being taken. Um, um, and I, I agree with that. Now, whether or not that actually gets us to the final, you know, uh, what what Deirdre McCluskey and I would call the, the correct um, and, and best unbiased estimate of the oomph of some new drug, um, that is, it's, it's, it's efficacy, true efficacy, if we can speak in that way, um, for, for uh, a particular context. Um, that, that we don't know, do we? And so I guess I, I would agree with Gossett that it's better to have independent experiments, start with small series of independent experiments that are both stratified and have allocation uh, balance. And then you know that as you build up your evidence piece by piece that you're doing it correctly along the way.
Since you brought up McCluskey, I want to ask you a question about this point you raise uh, in an article uh, you published together, and I can't remember what year it was, and uh, about this idea of fit not being the same thing as importance, which I think yeah. you're kind of dancing around here a little bit. So could you explain what you were thinking when you when you wrote that? Yes, that's right. Um, the, so in our book, The Cult of Statistical Significance, uh, we're basically arguing um, that statistical significance is neither necessary nor sufficient for proving a scientific or business or medical or economic result. Um, and I, so fit is not the same thing as importance, and importance is what we want, uh, both as statisticians and and as decision makers in our field. So um, could I give you a, a short illustration? Yeah, please. Okay, cool. Um, suppose your mom calls and says she wants to lose some weight. Um, she's thinking about a diet pill. She knows that you're good with the computer uh, and web searching and so on, and you think about data. So um, could you please help? So you say, sure, mom. You call her back after doing the research, and you've, um, you offer mom uh, uh, two, two different diet pills. The first pill promises to take 20 pounds off of mom on average, but it's rather uncertain in its effects at plus or minus 10 pounds. This pill is called pill oomph, promises to take 20 pounds off of mom, but it's uncertain uh, at plus or minus 10 pounds. So it could take 10 pounds off of mom, could take 30 pounds off. On average, research says it'll take 20 pounds off. Um, all you hear now is crickets on the phone. You're like, Mom, are you there? She's like, yeah. Yeah, why? You were just going blah, 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 blah. No, stay with me, Mom. Stay with me. One more pill. Pill precision is the other pill. That promises to take five pounds off. But pill precision is much more uh, precisely estimated at plus or minus a half pound around that average. So pill precision could take five pounds off mom on average, that's the prediction, but it could also take four and a half pounds off or five and a half pounds off, much more uh, tightly estimated. And so the question that we ask in the book uh, to, of the reader is, which pill for mom? I, I would go with the one that's going to give me 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't care about variability if the lower, if the lower limit is, is, that, looking, is that much better than the, the precise one. <laughs> I'm looking at John to see if this is the right answer. <laughs> you, you would take the one that would guarantee you at least the 10-pound weight loss because um, I presume you're arguing that that minimum um, effect from pill oomph actually dominates the, the maximum effect of pill precision. Yeah. The best pill precision will do is take off five and a half, right? Yep. That's true. Um, so that that's a, um, now can I just ask um, a, a follow-up question? Um, might it be the case that some people want to choose pill precision? Why? I, well, I just have trouble imagining that. I mean, it's it's precise, but but guaranteeing a lower value versus something that's uncertain. But but you're you're guaranteeing a, a a higher return if that's what you're looking for. Right, but that's the thing is if that's what you're looking for, and if you and and if you can handle it, if you go back to that risk and reward example of yeah. expected utility versus expected value, you can see that. Some moms, you know, are starting with a baseline weight of 115 pounds, God bless them. 
So if they lost 30, it might kill them. Um, on the other hand, maybe that same mom wants to fit into a, a pair of jeans, you know, for the, mm -hmm. for the summer garden party or, or whatever, and five pounds would be awesome. You know, I, that would get her. I, I think I was starting going. with different prior assumptions about where the weight was. <laughs> yeah, so my, 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 my prior belief of 110 was, was zero. I was, <laughs> so so I, I, I was starting with a much higher point. <laughs> they, precisely. And I, I think that's why my, so in my paper in the American Statistician, How Large Are Your G Values?, G value uh, number 10 is at the top. Um, it says, you know, consider best practice, compare results with, with what's actually going on right now. And that means understanding our baseline variables and, and you know, how, how, evaluating them um, from the uh, Guinness-symmetric point of view or the oomph point of view before we ever begin to make any decisions. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Roosevelt University's Stephen Ziliak about Guinness statistics and perhaps some haiku. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, you have a couple of times where you mentioned that you have some statistics haiku, so we may get back to that. I, I, I'd like to change gears a little bit and talk about kind of yeah. your, your progression from working as a caseworker to you know, analyzing welfare to work programs to, to eventually, uh, you know, into econometrics. So, yeah. so what were some of those early lessons from the experience of, of doing casework and welfare to work program analysis that, that you've carried forward and some of the insights that, how's that helped shape you as, a, as an econometrician? That's a great question. Thank you so much for asking me that, John. Um, gosh, uh, the first thing uh, I guess I, I discovered as a, as a caseworker is that statistics are made. Um, you know, we, we make them. They're not, uh, they're not something that are, that's given to us. And I think we make a mistake sometimes in our textbooks and in our textbook-based teaching, um, giving students the impression that, that data are found, that data are just out there to be uh, picked up like, I don't know, dollar bills off the sidewalk if you're so lucky. <laughs> but data are actually created. And that's, that was probably the first thing that I, I uh, learned as a, as a welfare caseworker in my early 20s. Uh, interestingly enough, I ended up writing my dissertation on a, an economy. It was an econometric uh, and social historical study of attempts to abolish public welfare in America, um, 19th and, and uh, uh, 20th century. And um, what I learned is that my very city of Indianapolis, where I was uh, living and working as a uh, welfare caseworker, was the, uh, was the premier site for the birth of the scientific charity movement in the United States of America. And uh, in fact, it was the group, the scientific charity people that called the Charity Organization Society, they invented statistical casework. They literally invented it. And so I ended up going back to Indianapolis uh, and, and looking in the Indiana Historical Society archives at the original case records um, of uh, welfare recipients and charity recipients from the 1870s to the early 1900s in Indianapolis. From there, I actually uh, created a, um, a, a data set that enabled me to do some 
what we call hazard analysis and Weibull uh, econometric analysis uh, to estimate um, the uh, different effects that household and, and external uh, work and environmental um, variables have on people's propensity to stay on welfare rolls. And uh, so that ended up being very fulfilling for me to, to go back and actually look at the data of, in some senses, uh, you know, exact same addresses that I had been, <laughs> I had been uh, visiting a hundred years later uh, to, to look at uh, welfare from that perspective and from that econometric point of view. But I guess um, to answer your question, John, probably the biggest thing that's carried forward with me came from my um, from an experience that I had at the Indiana Department of Employment and Training Services, now called Indiana Department of Workforce Development. Um, may I tell you briefly what happened there? Yes, please. Half of my job uh, as a labor market analyst at at employment and training was to uh, behave as sort of a reference librarian for um, the Indiana economy. Uh, so this is in the age before the internet, people would uh, telephone uh, my office and ask, you know, for example, uh, what's the GDP per capita in the state of Indiana for the following years and that kind of thing. And I had to find that data for them. Well, uh, one day a man from Gary, Indiana called and he wanted to know the distribution of unemployment rates for black youth workers in Indiana. Um, the metropolitan statistical areas were Gary, Fort Wayne, Indianapolis, and so forth. And uh, for each of the uh, metro areas, you know, what's the uh, unemployment rate for 16 to 21 year old black workers? I was so confident that I could supply that data for him, being a representative of the US Department of Labor, that uh, I kept my landline. Uh, on. I, I said, I'll be right with you. And I just set the landline phone on the desk, but I couldn't find the data. So I said, I'll call you back. My boss couldn't find the data. His boss couldn't find the data. His boss, boss couldn't find the data. Finally, we ended up with the Chicago uh, U.S. Department of Labor. Um, and they said, well, we collect black youth unemployment uh, data for uh, Indiana labor markets, but we're not publishing them. Well, oh, how come you're not publishing the data? Well, the p-values are too high. P-values <laughs> for what? The U.S. Department of Labor has a um, uh, had a rule at the time, and uh, I, I believe that's beginning to change, thanks in part to initiatives from from the ASA. Uh, but um, the U.S. Department of Labor in the 1980s had a rule that if the p-value, Fisher's p-value, came in at higher than 0.10, that they would not release um, the estimates. For, for testing and, what? I'm sorry? What, what were they testing? Uh, the, they're testing uh, um, unemployment rates for uh, black youth workers relative to some previous benchmark. Okay. And what they're saying is, and what they're saying is that essentially because of their small sample sizes and lack in, of investment, in this particular area, they had too much variability, they thought, in their estimates. So that they, since they could not find statistical significance in the new unemployment estimates, they decided to withhold publication. My argument would be no. Uh, black youth unemployment in Indiana is a major issue. That's a public policy issue. Um, and and st well, the baseline there is probably 40% 
unemployed in Gary, Indiana in the late 1980s, and nowadays probably double that or more. So we start with the fact that we have this thing in economics and society that needs to be discussed and solved. Now, whether or not we have statistical significance for the most recent estimates, probably not the most important issue. So my basically what happened to me is that I got upset and I, I uh, made complaints to the Department of Labor. And I said, I think we're doing something wrong here. And I vowed then and there that I was going to fight statistical significance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Before we go, since we're talking about sort of um, – your sort of history uh, leading up to sort of your experience as academic. I was reading on your website that you um, have taught introduction to e economics with grapes of wrath. And sort of <laughs> yeah. since we're talking around this issue of like, you know, society and social welfare, I kind of want to get um, maybe your quick sort of rundown of how you use grapes of wrath to teach introduction to economics to, to students probably who are not inclined to care about economics. I would imagine this is a large class that has yes. a lot of students from across the university in it. Yes, that's right. Um, you you don't really know who's going to appear in Econ 100. You know, the, the students coming from from all over the university. So first and foremost, but um, I started teaching economics, uh, in, intro to economics, using the grapes of wrath. My very first semester as a teacher, if you can believe that. I don't know why I did it at first. I was, I was so scared. Because you have so, so much scared. energy your first time you're teaching. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I kept it going, and I, I, I'm going to do it again this fall, actually. I haven't, I haven't taught Grapes of Wrath for about maybe five years uh, because I've been teaching mostly graduate courses. But I'm actually going to do it again this fall. I'm really looking forward to it. So, you know, I, on and off. I've been doing this for, what, 23, 24 years. Um, economics textbooks um, suffer from many of the same problems that statistics textbooks do. Um, the world is too pretty. The free markets are too perfect. Um, the people are too rational and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, the Grapes of Wrath is just a perfect counterpoint. Oh, my gosh. And uh, But, it, you know, it, the Grapes of Wrath, for people who uh, don't know, um, is centered on a family, which is a, um, a tenant farming family in Oklahoma um, during the uh, Dust Bowl and then the, the Great Depression, um, of course, which, which comes along with it. Um, and so this tenant farming family, which, which has uh, virtually no property, um, and uh, they have, uh, they're actually illiterate. There are three generations of, of illiterates in the Jode family, the central family of the story. They're forced to move. They're kicked off the land by the uh, by the bank, um, and much of the land has been foreclosed and um, and then enclosed. So you have expansion of the farms and replacement of labor with capital and all that kind of stuff. So the Jode family, this tenant farming family, goes west. They follow a handbill that promises high wages, orange groves, and white picket fences if they'll just come to California and work in the um, in the uh, grape fields and so forth. Well, it doesn't work out very well because a lot of people follow that same handbill. 
So supply exceeded demand and wages fell instead of rose. <laughs> uh, not so funny. Um, but that's part of the lesson, you know, that's something that the students um, can really relate to because by the time the wages start falling in California, the students have become completely enchanted by the Jode family. Yeah. Um, and all of them, you know, um, including Rosa Sharon and, you know, is her baby going to survive the journey? Yeah. Um, the Tom Jode character is also really important from the teaching point of view because he shows that a person might start off as kind of homo economicus. You know, they all they care about is themselves. They're just going to allocate their limited budget to maximize utility for themselves. And who cares what other people think and blah, blah, blah. But as you follow Tom Joad throughout the novel, The Grapes of Wrath, you see a person discovering other people, discovering his own yeah. empathy, you know? Yeah. And I think that's so important. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have. Before we go, Steve, uh, we would like to see if you would be willing to share one of your favorite statistical haiku on the way out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had one. Uh, I had one for you um, regarding gossip, regarding the brewer. It's not. Uh, it's not my favorite haiku. But if you want my favorite, I'm more than happy to tell you that one. Uh, I'll like, we could have a one? we could have a two for one special. They're not that long. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> good point. Okay, here's the one. Uh, Carl Pearson, who was the reigning um, um, authority of statistics uh, for a while in the early 1900s, um, called his friend Gossett a naughty brewer in one of the letters. He called him naughty for playing around with such small samples of numbers. Pearson being a large sample guy. So I. have have a little haiku it goes like this a naughty brewer made a small sample of beer and found students tea okay. <laughs> <laughs> and now i'll tell you my um my favorite one statistical fit epistemological strangling of wit <laughs> well thank you so much for being yeah. here today yeah thanks steve it's That's really my pleasure thank you so much stats and stories is a partnership between miami university's departments of statistics and media journalism and film and the american statistical association you can follow us on twitter apple podcast or other places where you can find podcasts if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program send your email to stats and stories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of stats and stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics